This edition of Farming the Countryside is brought to you by Pivot Bio Proven. Turn to a better nitrogen. Learn more at pivotbio.com. Welcome to Farming the Countryside. I'm Andrew McCray. Dean Sponheim sometimes gets odd looks from his neighbors. He farms some of the best soil in north-central Iowa, but the methods he uses are different than many in his area. His work has him speaking to many groups across the nation about what he has done with his fields, and you'll find applications to just about anywhere you may farm. It's our topic for this week's Farming the Countryside, brought to you by Pivot Bio. We all may be wondering where are prices headed these days? Can you maintain margins with the high volatility in grain and input markets? There is certainly uncertainty, but in these times, Pivot Bio Proven 40 is working to provide you a certain source of nitrogen, up to the equivalent of 40 pounds of synthetic nitrogen, in fact, that stays put, whether or not, as Pivot Bio Proven molecules attach to the roots of the corn plant. And in a time in which margins can be tight and more sustainable farming methods are more than a buzzword, it's time to look at Pivot Bio. Our field demonstrations show an opportunity for a better ROI and a reduction of synthetic nitrogen. To learn more, just go to pivotbio.com. Dean Sponheim farms between Osage and Mason City, Iowa. His soil is some of the best you'll find in the country. Today, he speaks to many farm audiences across the Midwest. His story goes back to one particular problem he was working to solve in one of his fields. Now, about two decades later, he has made many changes on his farm. And while there is certainly trial and error, those changes he has made have had many benefits for his operation. In fact, it's changed what he does on the farm, beginning other businesses related to how he is farming today. I think you'll be interested in how and why he has made some of those adaptations and what he's learned along the way. Dean, you farm some great soil up there in, in northern Iowa, but about uh, 15, 20 years ago, you began to experience or experiment with strip-till, the no-till, cover crops. Why, when so many others in your area probably said, uh, why would I ever <laughs> mess with that? Uh, uh, some of the people still say that, so not just even just 15 or 20 years ago. Actually, I started the strip-tilling just to solve a crusting problem on one of my farms that had a high clay content, and I would have to do a lot of replanting about 80% of the time. So it was not for environmental or conservation practices. It was a true economical decision to try strip tilling. So you're strip tilling, then eventually you decide here fairly recently to go to no-till. What was the difference then from going strip till to no-till where you farm? I truly believe after the many years of full wet tillage that we've done in north central Iowa on our heavy black soils that it's not quite there for us to switch directly to no-till, especially corn. We've had people switch no-till beans and have good success. But I've also seen people that go from full wet tillage on corn to no-till and give up yield. They actually go backwards for a number of years until the soil becomes what we call more healthy and more adaptive to no-tilling. And I think the strip tilling is that bridge that we can use from the full wet tillage to no-till. And I, I kind of use it as a crutch. Because I'd been strip tilling, I knew how to do it. It was working extremely well. It was actually simple after you've done it for 20 years. Um, but then my wife made me 
get outside my comfort zone and thought our soil was healthy enough, why not go to um, no-till? And it, we haven't looked back. So, You speak different places, and certainly people may be farming in places where strip-till is not as practical, and maybe they have to make the switch all over to no-till. So, number one, I'm going to suspect you're going to say, yes, it's worth it. But number two, are they going to see a lag for a while? Because you hear some people say, I switched, but I didn't see the results, and so I switched back. I, I would say in some, it depends on what you're talking about. Certain areas are different than others. But if you were to incorporate cover crops when you're switching from full-width tillage to no-till, that will expedite that time period of transition. And I have seen cases where you don't even see a setback. But you have to incorporate the cover crop to help maintain that soil structure and soil quality to be able to accept the no-till. So that's a big part of what you do. You may want to first describe what you do because you are now in the cover crop business, so to speak. But then I do want to get into that about uh, the kind of the, the how and why of what you do there. Yeah, we, we came across and started a strip till. Or, uh, well, actually, we had a strip till business in the early 2000s to help people um, start or adapt the strip tilling from full wood tillage because they didn't want to make the investment in equipment and all that stuff. So we did a lot of um, custom work. And then we started flying cover crops on in 2012, and we kind of stepped into that, too, just to actually handle the seed. And then we got into actually applying it. We hire, we have some uh, subcontractors that drill for us, and then we also hire an aviation company to fly a lot of cover crops on. And that really started just by accident, too, because I was always um, blamed by my customers or my neighbors. I always put too much nitrogen on. And I thought, well, maybe I am. Maybe I'm um, being a detriment to the um, to nature and water quality. But it was more, I was probably more greedy because I didn't want to lose that nitrogen down the water. And so, why cover crops? They actually sequester any extra nitrogen that I have, and then I can use that as a bank, a nutrient bank, and then I can withdraw that during the next year on my growing crop. Now with cover crops, are you just totally cereal rye? You started with some different things. So how did you get over to just one thing? Well, it's kind of gone. It went to the one thing. I started with a five-way mix when I first started, very expensive. And then I went to straight cereal rye. But in our business, we do have multiple mixes that we do use in certain situations. And a lot of times, some of our federal programs that are cost share for getting people started in the cover crops will require a multi-species. And so then we do enter in and use a, a, like rapeseed, radishes, kale, turnips. Um, we've got into some camelina now. Um, so it's expanding back again to maybe more of a mixtures if it works in those situations. But the standby is still cereal rye. Why is cereal rye so good? Um, because it's so easy to establish. It will grow on concrete if you keep it watered. Um, so it can go in, in a... Overwinters very well in our north-central Iowa climates. We have some harsher winters, and it does a nice job of uh, being there next spring and taking off early. That'll be the first thing that greens up. It'll green up before even your lawn. So it's fun to see the green in the, what normally would be barren and black soils in the spring. So as a farmer myself that has done some cover crops, some of us are worried about having something that overwinters because then we've got to kill it. You're going to tell me, though, I do want something that overwinters because that's probably half or more of the the thing is having something green in the spring so walk me through that why is that so important then to have something that's going to green up in the spring and then relieve my fears that i can kill it and plant into it because people are worried about that 
and that's a normal um, perception. I was worried too the first year or two that I was doing. I was I'm no different than anybody else. But as you do it, you get more comfortable. Why we want the living um, plant out there? Because how long is our normal growing season? We we have a corn or soybeans in our soil for maybe five to six months, five months maybe, and we're losing maybe two months in the spring and two months in the fall where there's nothing growing. And in that case, there is some natural end that's being released, nitrates. Um, that we're going to lose. And if we have the cover crop, that helps retain that nitrate. We don't see a lot of loss on P and K except for if it's erosion. If we're in a slope area, I mean highly erodible areas, then it's a, it's a no-brainer there as well. But it's not just a nutrient sequestering. It's also what it does to the soil. Uh, another species that we can enter, for every species that we can enter into that soil, it just helps the biology of the soil. I heard a person talk about the other day that in a spoonful of soil there's over eight million um, different organisms and bacterias that's more than what we have for population on the earth so as we enter as we introduce these other species um, bring it back to what we normally what we originally had the prairies where it had multiple species on the land and keeping the soil healthy and building our organic matter. The more we can get cover crops to grow, the more biomass that we produce, the faster we can gain back some of our organic matter. You showed some pictures where when you started out, you were worried and you killed this rye <laughs> way early. Now you don't. You're planting into rye that's what, four or five feet tall? Yeah, sometimes. We don't try to do that on a regular basis, but we, sometimes we're caught that we can do that. But no, we started um, terminating the rye as soon as we could. The first years, the rye probably only got four or five inches tall in the spring, and we would terminate it. Now we're planting into green rye, corn and beans, no tilling, and sometimes it does get to be three foot tall, and it doesn't bother us at all. Yields are the same or better? Better. Why is it? We continue to increase our yields, and that's because our soil has become more healthy. It's more forgiving, Um, and the corn and soybean plants react to that. Because what's happening is a lot of these organisms that we introduce with a cover crop are actually translocating nutrients deeper in the soil profile to our plants that we need in our cash crops. So they work together. One of the things we worry about is is having all of that material then on the ground in emergence and, and getting that seed up you know, within 24 hours. You're saying, though, not as important as we once thought maybe. It's, it's important, I think, in, when we're in a full-width tillage situation and we get our seed up as fast as we can as a consistent. But what we've seen in our heavy cover crops is we can have a two- to three-day difference in emergence, and we don't see a yield difference. I can't explain it. I don't know why that is, but that we've seen that time and time again, that our emergence doesn't have to be perfect or every 24 hours that we have to have it up because it, it, it really doesn't make that much difference to us. I would say if we can get everything up within a week, uh, we'll have maximum yields. But we've seen our yields continue to climb um, at a very steady pace. And right now we're at about 30% over what our county average is. No problem getting the, whether it be corn or beans, up through that material. It'll come on up through it then. Yes. It, it's <laughs> when you see a cornfield and you don't see any corn in it because all you see is rye, it's a little uh, unnerving, but it does come and appear. It's like magic. Eventually, the rye will melt down, and the corn will appear. Same with beans. So are you now spraying to terminate that or crimping or both? 
Um, we're still spraying most of it, but we're working towards our goal is to do all crimping and try to get away from as much herbicide use as we possibly can. We're still trying, we're still in the, the theory sp- stages and trying stages. Uh, talk to me in a couple of years. Hopefully we'll have a little more on that and more of a, a definite plan of what we're doing and actually we'll actually make it work. Is the crimping then going to that because of cost? Is it because of going organic? What would be their, their reasons to switch to that? Well, anytime we introduce chemicals to our soils, whether it's on top or whatever, we still do some damage to the organisms. So we're trying to get away from the chemicals as much as we can. We're probably not going to go to organic. I don't need to go to there, but it may, maybe we'll be uh, there eventually, but I don't think we will be. I just want to have the option to not use as much as many herbicides and use more of the, the natural, uh, the, the cover crops and crimping. So with your cover crops now then, are you at just one pass of herbicide? You'll have a burn down, but then just one pass after that? Is that your herbicide program? Yes, that's basically what we do. Okay. Um, if the rye gets larger than we anticipate, sometimes just one pass. I think probably half of our acres this year, we probably one passed it because our corn came up so fast we didn't get our pre's on. And so we just one passed it. And it's, doing, it's holding very, very well. In your area, people worry about if I don't till the ground, I can't get in as fast, I can't get the, the seed in. I'm betting you're going to tell me you can't get in as fast as your neighbors, but that's still not been a problem for you in getting the crop in and getting the yield you want? That is correct. We had a um, situation this year where we had cool and very wet spring, and we did have some strip tilling that we had done last fall for other for some reasons, like on tiling ground and things like that. But we could get in on our ground three days earlier on the strips, and I still say the strip tilling does an excellent job of doing that. But our rye, growing rye green, actually helps us warm the soil up and dry it out. Maybe not quite as fast as strip tilling, but it would be faster than if you were strictly no-tilling with no cover crops. Because that living organism is actually respirating, and then the organisms around that cover crop generate heat, and then the cover crop is actually taking up water to, to dry that soil out. You mentioned, though, that the soil is going to look different to me with that standing rye. We never want to plant into black dirt, usually. We call it in in northwest Missouri, you want to plant into white dirt or it looks like dry, but I shouldn't have that expectation. Not in full, full, really tall rye because the ground will still look black. It will not get that uh, white look, you call it. We call it grain off in, in Iowa or northern Iowa because the sun kind of bleaches it when it dries it it does not get the sunlight so it doesn't turn that lighter color it stays black but if you really dig into it take a little spade or your hand you will not be able to make a ball or a ribbon out of it it'll be drier it's really deceiving (laughs) talk about establishing the cover crop you've done aerial you've done drilling is it just depend on the year uh, of what you're going to do how do you decide a lot of it depends on what you want to do with it or what your ultimate goal is with the cover crop. If you want a consistent stand, if you want to try to do for weed suppression by crimping, then we're going to have to go to drill. That's the most consistent way of, uh, of establishing a, a stand. It's also the slowest, and also we have to wait to harvest. And in north central Iowa, you're from Missouri, you have a little more time after harvest to be able to establish cover crops. In north central Iowa, sometimes we're finishing up combine and the ground is froze. So it's very hard to establish it then, too, as well. But with an airplane, it's the fastest, um, probably the most economical way. We just don't get the consistent stands year after year. 
especially if we're fighting, it's very picky on your crop maturity of when we're flying it on. If the corn is not far enough along or if the beans aren't far enough along, we won't be able to get a good stand established. It's still, the drill would still be the best and not everybody has drills. And we can, in our business in North Central Iowa, where we, ha- we, we actually have growers grow rye for us and we clean it and then resell it and apply it, we can apply with one plane 1,000 acres a day. Actually, last year we did 2,000 acres a day with one plane where we can only do about 400 acres with a drill a day, four yeah. to 500. Makes a difference. Yeah. Walk through the economics because certainly putting on cover crops, there's a cost to it, but in the end is the, the cost, I'd say, worth it probably. I'm not going to spend a whole hour talking about economics, but I'll, I'll tell you a little bit of recap just on what I've seen on our studies. I've got 180 that we're applying cover crops on one half of it, not on the other half, and we've been doing it for seven years. And I'm seeing a seven-bushel increase on the corn side, about a half a bushel increase on the beans. So we're netting about 20 to $30 an acre more where we have our cover crops. So in just doing that, <laughs> and we're paying 30 to $35 for application and and cover crops, we're just still behind about $15. But we're seeing that we're getting a higher um, soil test results on our P&K, and that's not from over-applying P&K. We're still applying just removal rates, and yet we're seeing our tests go up. And our soil organic matter is starting to creep back up again because of the cover crops. And there's quite a bit of um, value to those two things, especially the way P&K prices are and with the carbon credits. I mean, we just sat in a, a carbon credit meeting, and there's, there's, some, there's some value to that. You mentioned about organic matter. Talk for a moment about you're slowly gaining that organic matter, but how much that's worth. Because when you show how much 1% of organic matter is worth, then that really makes the economics look a lot different. Yeah, I won't go through all that specific of how many pounds of nitrogen we are getting or how many tons of carbon, but... In our last slide, it was a little bit over $1,200 of actual product or actual value that we will get from every 1% organic matter. But the other thing that I really like, and, and that maybe you remember this, back in 2008, we had a major flood on the Cedar River down at Cedar Rapids. If we were to increase on every acre in the Cedar River watershed by 2%, we could have held enough water that Cedar Rapids would have flooded because for every 1% organic matter, we can hold one more inch of rainfall or about 28,000 gallons of water per acre. The $1,200 you mentioned, is that, how, how much time do you calculate that over then, the $1,200 well, per acre? In my case, what I've tracked on my farm, it's, I gain about six one-hundredths of a percent of organic matter a year. I have neighbors that are telling me that they're getting a tenth of a percent a year. So in 10 years, they would get 1%. They would get 1%. There's the 1200. Yep, so that'd be 1200 bucks over those 10 years. So they're about $120 worth of value in the organic matter. In my case, it's a little bit less. Um, it takes me about 16 years to get that. And I think as I look, I, I always question that because the neighbors, that, especially the one that keeps saying a, a tenth of a percent, I know it's true. I, I, I believe his numbers but I've also seen the yields, and his yields have sort of right at county average, and mine have continued to increase. And I think I'm eating some of that organic matter increase into the yield. Okay. okay? So I'm getting the benefits of both. 
I'm getting a little bit of organic matter, but I'm getting more in yield. And his, he maintained his yields. He did not go backwards at all. And it's starting to come up now again. But it's, it's just interesting how that works. But, you know, it took us, I've lost about, I've lost about 60% of probably where my organic matter should, where it started when it was on prairie. And it took about 150 years to get it to this point. And I think in, well, it's going to take me, if you take 16 years times five, what's that? About 90 years to get it back. How's that? <laughs> well, it'll be good if you're still farming the 90 years. Well, I'm not looking. I don't think it'll be that long. Maybe, maybe my grandchildren will see that effect. Right. But it's worth, it's worth oh, doing it. You bet it is. And, and everybody says, well, it's too late. Why do it now? No, it's never too late to start. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's wind up with that, talking about it's never too late to start. There are a lot of people that don't start, and you're in a part of the country where people love to till, and there's a lot of reasons why we believe that we should. So, number one, why should they start, and what are the challenges they're going to have to overcome to start? The challenge first is to change their mindset because it's been indoctrinated in three or four generations. This is how we do it. We work the ground, we till the ground so we could get a crop. And I'm not going to talk bad of my ancestors because that's the only way they could have farmed. They had to work it. They didn't have the chemicals. They didn't have the equipment they could go no-till uh, or anything like that. It, but now it's different. We have the equipment. We have the knowledge. We have the herbicides that we can do this. Um, they just have to be concerned about themselves, being able to handle it. Because we can talk them through it. And the big thing for most people, new, the, start, the guys that start up, is they have to find somebody they can talk to that have been doing it. You have to be able to share knowledge. And that's something that most farmers won't do. We've been taught to keep it to ourselves. We're going to try to outcompete our neighbor and our other competitors. But what I've seen in this whole transition of the, more of the conservation practices, I've seen more open dialogue between competitor farmers and that's what it's going to take because you don't want to spend all the time that i took and reinvent the wheel and make all the mistakes that i did and so if you can talk to somebody that can steer you away from them and speed up the process it isn't so painful this conversation has taken place as we look about carbon credits and not necessarily focusing on any one certain company, but are there any things people should keep in mind about having this discussion of cover crops and no-till and strip-till with this whole other discussion of carbon credits out there? Maybe just some general things I should keep in mind if I'm considering all of that. Yeah, and I think it's good that we have the carbon credits. I think they're around for to stay. I think this is a totally different thing than what we saw 20 years ago. We had carbon credits basically for the power companies. Um, this is more like the Walmarts and um, FedEx are jumping on. They want to be more green or carbon neutral. And they're still going to burn carbon fuels, so they have to buy credits from us. I would say go into it slowly. Make sure what companies you're working with and retain the ownership. That's a big thing that I've come across now is retain ownership of your carbon credits. Um, you're not going to get rich on them. And it's probably not even going to cover some of the costs of the practices that you're actually going to have to implement to be able to qualify. But it's going to help you. And who knows what the carbon credit price is going to be in the future. You know, I've always been sort of a negative person on carbon credits because I think why should 
the big companies get by and continue to pollute when we're doing our part to keep ourselves from polluting so much. Um, but in this situation, it's still another revenue stream, and maybe it'll become a, a larger part of it. I don't know. I don't know where the prices will be. Well, in other words, making some of those switches is good just for soil health and doing those things, but the carbon credits could be an extra bonus. Yeah, it's just like um, the cost-share incentives at the NRCS, the watershed programs that we have. It not always covers the costs, but it will help people get started. And then once they see the benefits of what they're doing, and some of it, it takes almost somebody to point them out because I was one of those that didn't realize what was happening with my soil because I was doing it for other reasons. And when I finally realized and opened my eyes what was going on, I, it was unbelievable. I've really enjoyed the discussion. Thank you. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. If you ever get a chance to see Dean speak in person, I'd suggest you do. He'll have plenty of pictures, figures, and a lively Q&A session where he's very honest about what has worked and not worked for him. That's it for this week's Farming the Countryside. I appreciate you listening. Remember, you can hear all of our shows at farmingthecountryside.com, on many local radio stations, or on your favorite podcast platform. And you can follow Farming the Countryside on Facebook as well. And you can also hear our daily show, American Countryside on many of these same radio stations and at AmericanCountryside.com. I'm Andrew McRae. I'll catch you next time on Farming the Countryside. This edition of Farming the Countryside has been brought to you by Pivot Bio Proven. Turn to a better nitrogen. Learn more at PivotBio.com.